Hey, welcome back to another episode of Business of Film. This is episode number 81. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and I'm excited to be back here with you to do our Business of Film podcast, especially considering we have two filmmakers, Ben Foster and Mark Dennis, on the show with us today. They are a co-directing filmmaking team from Austin, Texas, and they've They've made this amazing movie. Uh, it's something I really enjoyed. They sent it to me. I looked at it. I was like, I got to have these guys on the show. Uh, the movie's called Time Trap. Just to give you just a couple fun pull quotes from some of the festivals, uh, Ain't a Cool News called it a mind-bending shift in the space-time continuum. Uh, IndieWire called it an innovative new sci-fi adventure that rips apart both space and time at its very seams. Both of those uh, pull quotes, both true and both completely accurate. Uh, Time Trap, well, it's about this group of archaeological students. They're trapped inside of a mysterious cave uh, where time passes differently underground than on the surface. And I have to mention that now because we we actually start talking about the film without really talking about what the story of the film is uh, so that some of the stuff that we get into makes sense. In the show today, we go into some of the things that uh, they did to really bootstrap their way to getting this film made, some of the lessons that they share, the things they did right, the things that they think that they would do differently. We get into all of it. We talk about the development, the production, uh, the visual effects component, the financing, the distribution. We get into it all. So this is this is kind of something new for us where we really have the opportunity to deconstruct a film. And so I hope that uh, you get some uh, something out of it. And without further ado, let's, let's jump in and I uh, hope you enjoy. Thanks. We're glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. So the film, Time Trap, I just want to start this podcast by saying that I watched the movie and like anybody who watches an independent film, you go into it with excitement, but it's like that script. You, 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 know, you turn the first page and you're hoping for the best. You're not quite sure. You get three pages, 10 pages in. You're still not sure whether you're going to you know, keep reading, but your film, it grabbed me from the beginning. It took me all the way to the end. I really, really enjoyed it. And I mean that sincerely. So I'm super excited to talk about your film on the show. Um, before we get going here, I'd love it if you could just tell our audience a little bit about yourselves, what your background is, you know, in as short as or as long as you like. But just tell us a little bit about where you come from, how you got into the film business. And uh, let's, let's start there. Uh, ben, how about you? So I, I'm from Texas, uh, like Mark, and you know I think we, I just grew up as a kid. You know my dad would get the camera out and we'd play play with it, and he'd show me camera tricks. And my uncle uh, was a cinematographer on some some independent films, and so I kind of had a little glimpse into the behind the scenes of making movies, and I think that got, that got me excited about making my own. And uh, as I got older, you know I'd, I would always opt for the video project in high school, and kind of got some encouragement from showing that to to people there. And by the time I got to college, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, which, you know, not everybody does. Um, and so I hit the ground running and I was, I was making stuff as a freshman and a, and a sophomore when I, when I met Mark, we had a class together and we've been working together ever since we, we did some shorts when we were in college. And then that turned into our first feature, uh, strings. And we did all kinds of festival stuff with that. And time trap is our, our second movie. And here we are. I don't think either one of us realized uh, when we were in school and started doing projects together that there was the, I know we'd heard of like co-directing, but it, it, we never thought that our careers would be as co-directors. We, we thought we would like do our own thing, but we work so well together on everything because we, our strengths and weaknesses complement each other so much. 
that, it, that we realize it's better to just work together and, you know, not try to be the star or anything like that and just make the best movie possible. And I think we both, st- we both like stick with it. Um, cause it's hard. And the idea is, you know, like, like you said, this is a pretty crazy movie and, uh, you know, all of Mark's ideas, I feel like have, we're always biting off more than we can chew when we make a Mark Dennis script. There's, there's a degree so. of insanity in the in, in the uh, idea process that I always throw something at Ben. I'm like, what if this movie was about this and then this happened? He's like, that well, let's doesn't start there. Okay. Let's actually start start there, guys, because I, I am really curious about the the idea where it started from. It is a really interesting idea. I mean, anytime you enter kind of that world of sci-fi. Uh, and you start playing with with time specifically, it can get really complicated really fast. But your idea is so clean, uh, and I'm just wondering about where did you come up with it, and just take us through that that kind of that initial stages of where the idea came from, and and how you got it to the, your your first draft. Um, I uh, I was gone for a few years traveling, and when I came back, uh, I felt like everybody had kind of moved on and become different people, and they all were married and had families and stuff, but I felt like I was still like the, the guy from college who wanted to have a good time and go out and party and, and everybody had, had grown up. Um, and I, I was staying at Ben's house. He was out of town. He was doing a commercial somewhere, I think in New York. And I was, I remember like waking up from a dream and just kind of like thinking about, thinking about a few things. And I started thinking about like what it would be like to Oh, and no, I should, I should, okay, sorry, I should, I should talk about this. We, we were trying to get another movie off the ground called Enduro, and we were sending deal memos out or offers out to actors like Pierce Brosnan and Billy Bob Thornton and waiting on them to get back with us, back to us so that we could get an attachment for the movie and raise funding. And we would have to, we would send it out and it would expire in like two weeks. And while we were waiting on them, we would like every day wonder, like, is this movie going to happen? Is this going to happen? You know, we're trying to shoot in October. It was a- April at the time. And it was kind of agonizing to always wonder if, if we were ever going to be validated again and be able to make another movie. And it, it, it kind of uh, hinged on this one person that we sent the uh, offer to. And I thought, well, man, if I could just go into a closet and come out two weeks later and know the answer, I'd be super happy. And I thought that'd be cool, a, a cool concept for a movie if you could walk into a closet and, and, and time speed up. And I think that uh, that kind of related to this experience when I was traveling for too long that everybody had changed and I came back as the same person. Um, and we, I don't know, just came up with an idea of these kids going into a cave and it was a, a time cave. And, and and so how long did it take you from the from the time that you had that initial idea that you know, started tapping away at the keyboard? How long was it until you had uh, your first draft? Not necessarily your shooting draft, but the, the first full draft. I I want to say like the from the idea, I had an idea and I think I wrote like a three-page synopsis and I sent it to Ben and then I went off to Thailand for my birthday and wrote the script on a beach and, you know, maybe over the course of three days, it was a you know, very rough first draft, but I sent it to Ben and then I'm, I want to say we wor- workshopped it for a couple weeks and we were going to make it as a found footage movie and we weren't really going to like give it our all. We were just going to, you know, spend a couple months doing it and get in the mindset again to make another movie. Cause we were trying to make Enduro, but it turned out like everybody that we showed it to was like, this is a really cool idea. Spend some more time, get this right. You, you know, really, really figure it out and, and make it as a real movie. Don't do Don't do it on a found footage on a found footage scale. Make it, you know, shoot it on a red. And, uh, we were, I think I finished writing it like on May 15th and we were shooting in August of the same year. So it, it happened really, really fast. But we had a lot of resources kind of lined up for, for the other film. We had a shoot date that we wanted to hit. We had some money raised and, you know, Mark sent me that, 
he sent me that three page synopsis and I remember being like, well, this sounds complicated. I don't know. Like we've already, we're already down the road with, with Enduro. And then he sent me the first like 60 pages and I was like, oh yeah, this is way cooler. This is, this is great. We're so gonna be making this. What's interesting about the movie, what I found interesting about it was I wasn't sure whether or not this was going to become a time travel movie where you were going to be playing with time in the sense that time was going to be going backwards and forwards. But you had this idea there that there's this linear progression of, of time and they're stuck in the cave. And I don't want to give away the ending necessarily. Well, I don't. I don't want to give away the ending because I think the ending is really cool. But were you ever playing with with time as sort of um, as more of a kind of a circular thing or were you always from the very beginning, did you have it that idea that, that time would be linear? It was... Um... The movie has always been about losing time and losing things because you've lost time and being gone for too long. It was never about like going back. It was always like going too far forward and like or being stuck going forward. Yeah. No matter what and you make it, you make a decision sometimes and that decision can cost you everything. And you think, God, I wish I could go back. But you're kind of stuck to deal with the, the future, the present that you've created. Right. So, I mean, like the, the, the idea was that because the ending of the movie, I mean, again, not giving it away, but it is bittersweet, right? It is, it is this very bittersweet ending. And, um, and so did you have the ending when you started or did you, or did you just kind of just go from the beginning and go right through to the end? Like in, the, ending, in, in, the ending was always kind of bleak um, just because I feel like, I don't know why, I don't know why it was so bleak, but I don't think the actual ending that's in the movie was um, something we ever thought we could do because it was a little bit, it was a little bit uh, above what we felt like we could accomplish. But after we, sh- we shot most of the movie and there was this idea for the ending that was always there that we kind of like joked about. And when we finished the first draft of the movie, I think we realized that it wasn't it didn't feel right. And that crazy idea that we had was much better. And it was just like, well, you know what, let's just figure out a way to do this crazy ending and see how it works. And when, it, when we finally finished shooting it and editing it together, we were like, this was absolutely the way for the movie to go. People come out of the, come out of the theater and they're like, what did I just watch? That was, that was crazy. And well, I don't think we thought. Yeah. I mean, see like that to me is the really interesting part because it sounds like the ending, it was narratively driven from the very beginning, but it was about how do you actually pull it off? So we'll get to that in the, uh, you know, when we talk about the production, I definitely want to talk about that. So, Okay, so you, you've, you've got this script. I think it's really interesting that you kind of shifted gears from one project and then went right into this project, which I, I, guess, I guess you felt was more marketable and that you just had this way of, of, of putting it together. So let's, let's talk about that for, for a second. Uh, when you started production, can you just, just tell us a little bit about sort of the nuts and bolts of you know, how you went about physically putting it together. Did you have to, you know, did you already have this? I mean, obviously you had to go find a cave. How big was your crew? What did you shoot on? How many days did you shoot? Just give us some context for, um, you know, the behind the scenes of this movie on, on sort of a physical production level. It was hard. We shot underground in a cave in the middle of August in Texas. It's like the worst idea you can have. But, <laughs> but we, uh, but we did it. I mean, we shot. So our, our DP Mike is one of the first people that told us that we should be making uh, a more cinematic movie with this thing that we wanted to do as a found footage uh, film. And uh, I work with him on a lot of commercials and stuff like that. So, and he, he shot our first movie. So between me, Mark, and Mike, we have a really kind of good shorthand. And uh, you know, Mike got our our kind of camera crew together. He's from Austin, also. Um, we shot on a red and uh, one camera, know, we, obviously. 
one one camera for everything but the fight scenes. Got it. So we had some kind of action sequences where we shot a B cam, um, but it's all it's all red on Cook S4, you know, cinema lenses. It's, it's it's a cool. I mean, it was a we looked official when we were next to the camera, and then we looked, <laughs> we looked pretty not official everywhere else we were. <laughs> I don't think of it as a found footage movie. It's not. No, it's definitely not. Okay. But there's, but there's elements. You know, the, the characters use the cameras that they're filming with in the in the cave uh, to put the story together. So that's sort of hundred uh, percent. But the but the, the the impression that you get certainly, at least for me, watching it was no, no. This was this was a movie filmed on I didn't know what, but it was you know filmed on either an Arri or a Red, and you know it was and, and you had beautiful lenses, obviously. Uh, what about your lighting? Did you have a lot of lights? Or did you just go in there with you know with just like a few little? What did you? No, we had we had a lot of lights. That was a big uh, sort of decision that we made early on. We didn't want to make a movie like The Descent, where you're sitting there in the dark with a, a girl with a flashlight. And uh, we and Mike was very uh, thorough, I guess, about putting light on all the all the parts of the cave. So there's nothing that really falls off into black. It's a very kind of '80s uh, lit lit movie, and it's not supposed to. The cave is a character, and it's not supposed to be too dark of a character it's just the place that you're you're in but we want a texture on all the walls so there's a lot of lights yeah and how big of a crew were you running with depending on the day i mean the smallest day we had was probably like four of us just doing inserts and stuff like that um but the biggest days i mean we had probably 60 there was, uh, i remember one people. day counting there were 77 people on set and that's that was a day where we had um all kinds of stunt stuff going on um you know sequences with uh with fight scenes, people on people on ropes, climbing up cave walls, and a big art art day. Well, um, what I love about that is, it's like, but you were running with like your see. Okay, there, there's there's two things there that I find really interesting. But for the most part, you were running with how many grips, electrics, camera crew? Like, what what was your main body of, of people? Like ten, fifteen? I, I think we had fifteen or twenty people on set every right every day for the main part of shooting. The bulk of the days were probably about that much. But it's it's so interesting that on some days you still had only four, and on some days you like on a big day you you had seventy. So like I I find that on some days I think we had only one. I mean, there's a couple of shots in there where I think I just picked up stuff in the apartment, Mark and I were editing, and I was like, we need this shot, and I I did an insert or two where it was like I rolled on the camera, I I held my hand. Is that still in the movie? No, you reshot it. Oh, I reshot it. But we had a lot of stuff. I mean, this movie, you know, we edited for a long time, and we we had a f- these sort of uh, two times we went back, and we we always planned on going back to uh, to pick things up after the principal shoot because we were just out of money, and it was going to be impossible for us to get everything we wanted to shoot into the original uh, chunk of shooting. And, um, and how many days did you shoot for? The, the the first round of shooting was about twenty two days. Uh, that was enough to kind of get the the this main structure of the movie we still knew that we had to finish some stuff and we went out to LA and shot for like another two weeks and then came back to Austin and shot for another week um I think overall the entire movie not counting like Ben in his room shooting stuff was probably about 40 days you shot for 40 days wow that's amazing so, so, so you had 22 main unit days and then what was your other uh I don't know 15 odd days well this so so that when we went back to LA to shoot we shot at the old bat cave um at Bronson Canyon and that was another full day. I mean, we had probably 30 or 40 people on those days. And that was, we shot three three or four days there and then came back to Texas. And that was a, a smaller crew. That's a nice amount of time, guys. That's that's really, really awesome. So, so how did, so 
when you put this together, uh, I mean, obviously, I assume you guys sat down, you budgeted it all. So let's talk about sort of your your budget and financing because I'm, I'm I'm really curious. You know, I watched it. Well, that's what I was going to say. The uh, the fact that we were able to finance ourselves and pay for as much of it as we could just with cash um, didn't set us to a, to an end date. So we could kind of use this. Um, we we could keep making the movie better and better um, over the course of about two years of shooting. And I think that was a huge tool for, for us making, making a great movie because so many times when I see movies in the theaters that weren't good, a lot of times I just think, Oh, maybe they just weren't finished. Like we got to finish our movie and a lot of people don't get that chance. I think you were about to ask about how much uh, everything costs from beginning to end. Is that where you were going? Yeah, no, I was curious because I honestly, guys, I was watching it and we were talking a little bit about this before we started the call, but you know, I, the the range in my mind, you know, could have been pretty high to, you know, bootstrapped. And so if everything that you're telling me right now, I, I'm definitely curious. Do, do you mind sharing with our audience how much uh, the budget for the film was? How much everything costs when there's still a lot of like people that are deferred and, you know, we owe money to some people still. But when we first started, it was just when it was the found footage thing, it was going to be $10,000 or something. And Ben and I were both going to put a little bit of money in. And then when we realized we were going to make a real movie, um, we had to get like what like $130,000 was the, was the first investment, the first round of shooting, um, been a lot on credit cards. Once we had the, the first cut of the movie, we took that to some sales agents, had them appraise it and um, took the appraisals from the sales agents and, to some investors and got another another big chunk of money. We got basically the 300000 after that that we needed to, to really make the movie that we wanted to make from the get-go because we were able to take what we've done so far and kind of evidence the fact that, like, this is a cool idea, this is going to be done well. Um, you know, you can trust us, these filmmakers that haven't really done anything that any, anybody's heard of. Um, and... That's that's how we. I mean, in the in the credit card thing, you know, I had I had a business card and I had two personal cards, and I called and told them both that I was going to make an expensive purchase that week, and they upped my limit to twenty thousand each, and then they just, <laughs> oh, we just did craft services and went to the rental house that's um, on those cards. Yeah, so I've wrecked my credit. Marks is still great. That's great. Seven hundred right now. <laughs> Good for you. I think that's why you have two directors, so one person can wreck their credit and one person can, you know, be safe for the next one. Um, so uh, you're the next one, Mark. So okay, so th- this is this is really cool. Okay, so you you raised a, the initial round uh, of investment was uh, was private equity, uh, and then you went and you talked to some sales. So let's talk about this in, 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 in two parts because I'm, I'm really curious here. When you went out to find a sales agent for your film, uh, what did you do? Um, who did you talk with if you're you know, comfortable sharing some of the companies that you may have spoken with? Or how did you go about evaluating, more importantly, what sales companies you felt would be a good match for your film? We talked to um, – we had a, a friend who did some – worked for some sales agents and he connected us to – I want to say about four or five different companies and they each, they each showed us like what they felt like it was worth. And we, we but, talked, but they're giving us highs and lows. The thing about it, it's like, they're like, Oh yeah, you can sell this in, uh, in Germany for $250,000 or 20,000. And we're like, the range, the range is crazy. Like the, tell me anything. the low end for everything. Some of them was like 300,000. Some of them, you know, the high end was two and a half million. So it was hard to tell. It was hard to tell like what we were actually going to get back at the end of the day. And, you know, the company that we wound up going with, we felt like they were the strongest one. I'm not going to say who it was because they went out of business. 
Um, but you know, in the beginning it felt like it was, it was a great thing. And then over, over time it, it turned out to not be the best thing for us. But the issue is that you don't, we didn't have the ability to sort of keep in check what they were doing with the movie or, or we didn't stay on them enough to do that because, you know, we but got that was at the end of the film. So, but at the beginning and, and no, this, this is, this is the middle of the movie. So we had our halfway done film, you know, that. That we shot enough of that was a that was a complete thought that you could watch and say okay there's some potential here they need to raise more money, um, which is why we went to them, but they went out and took our trailer and just sold territories that they weren't authorized to sell. So the the issue that I guess if we want to get into our trials and tribulations is that our film has been at these markets and buyers have seen it and they're aware of the movie. Um, for so long that it's starting to feel like old news to them when in reality this thing has only been this has been doing festivals for less than a year and uh and it's an untapped uh piece of ip okay so i i didn't want to jump there to the end just yet but uh, since you're 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 talking about it this is a really interesting and cautionary and important point what you're saying is that and, and this happens a lot in the independent film world so i think certainly people who are who are listening to this, I mean, this is a massive, I don't want to say it's a massive problem, but it's definitely a massive takeaway and something that people should be aware of. So what, what happened to you, it's not an uncommon story. And we've heard it before. Certainly, we've, we've talked about it before on this podcast, but I don't think as specifically as this case, the sales company was out there effectively making sales on the film. But now, did, wait, wait a second, did you have a signed contract with the sales company? At that time, were they or, or were they repping and trying to make sales in advance of them doing a deal with you because they didn't know what kind of a deal they would want to do? So they were just repping that they owned the film, which again happens. Not even a handshake deal, really, with them. We just had them. The idea was take this movie out, see what you think people will pay for it, and come back to us so that we can go to our private equity people and see if we can raise more money. And they were out there selling the movie, selling the movie they basically didn't own. Yeah, basically making deals with sort of tertiary. They were small territories, but it still forces us into business with them no matter what. And that's what they were doing um, because based on their logic, however flawed I, you know, we think it is, um, there's an implied deal in place by us even giving them links and materials to go to market. Well, no, no, it's 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 flawed on both sides because then they're out they're out there essentially making a, making a sale or coming back and saying I've sold it to such and such territory, but you haven't actually signed a contract. Yeah, be very, be very careful, and and you know I think don't don't fool yourself into thinking that you need them would be my biggest takeaway, mm. because at the end of the day we didn't need them, we uh, just needed somebody to give us the confidence to walk into a room with an investor, and say um, you know that's what this thing is worth, and we felt like we needed that data, which is not even, it's so arbitrary what they what they pull out of the air to value some of this stuff anyway when there's no cast. Well, okay. Uh, well, let's 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 talk about the casting because obviously, especially when you're talking to sales companies, a lot of it is cast contingent. If you've got X person, it's worth so much. If you've got Y person, it's worth again so much. Now, in your case, let's actually let's actually go back in time a bit here and talk about the casting of this. So, how did you go about putting together your cast? Did you hire a casting agent? Did you contact the agents directly? What was your thought in terms of who you wanted to cast? Um, in the, in the very beginning, it was going to be made in Austin and we were going to just cast locally in Austin with, you know, some of our friends and, and do some, some auditions. And we had, we had a group of people come in and, and, and read, and we even did some workshopping with them to the point where we thought that we had found our cast. And then, 
uh, we talked to uh, JC Cantu, who has a, a casting agency in, in Beverly Hills called Rising Phoenix, and he was he was casting our other movie called Enduro. But he he liked the script for Time Trap, and he was like, I think this would be really cool. Why don't we um, Why don't we see who we can get for Time Trap? I've, I've got some I've got some ideas that I think would be really good. And then he started immediately sending uh, auditions and and reels of other actors. And you know, two weeks before we were before we were shooting, we still didn't know who a lot of the people were going to be. Uh, ben was spending all day organizing the shoot, and I was, you know, in the other room skyping actors from all over the world that were interested in coming in and shooting. I don't think we even had Cassidy Cassidy Giffords, the the lead actress, in, and we didn't even have her until like two days before. Riley McClendon, who's the, the male lead in it, he was he had sent in an audition. We really liked it, and then we didn't get back to him in time. And he he messaged back, was like, "Is there another take that you like on this? It's some direction I could I could change it up a little bit." Which we really liked. We liked the initiative, and and that showed on set because that's how he was on set too. But he sent like another he sent another reading and was like, "Yeah, this guy's great. He's got a, he's got a good look for it." So we cast him. Everybody was cast out of L.A., all the, the main leads except for Olivia Dragicevich. She was in our in our first movie, Strings. But when we made Time Trap, we wanted to make sure that we still did the audition process. We auditioned several other girls. There was another girl that almost got it, but she seemed a little bit too mature. Um, Olivia still seemed like a kid, and we wanted that we wanted that kid sister role uh, in the movie to give it more of like a Goonies feel. And at any, at any point, you. I, I gather, obviously, because of the way this this came together, there was no constraint in terms of you had to have. Um, I don't want to be as I don't know. I, I don't want to say star, but for the lack of a better word, yeah, a recognizable name. Yeah, no. Well, so by the time we got, you know, to that second phase that I was talking about, where we're going back for more money, the way we shot the movie, we had uh, the professor that the kids go looking for um, inside the cave. Um, that character was shot in a way that he could be swapped out um, for someone else. And so we had, you know, some interest from Richard Dreyfus and um, and some other people and they were on the hook to play it. And he, he hurt his back. And then we had a week before we were going to shoot. And I had hung out with like Luke or uh, Owen and Andrew Wilson when I was in college. They were always at the bar at the hotel and we'd put drinks on their tab and like <laughs> and then hang out. Um, maybe that's and, for another podcast. <laughs> my, yeah. And my, my, uh, my sister, my sister-in-law had her, had Andrew's phone number still. Um, and I was like, will you give me Andrew's number? Cause first of all, a younger, it worked out great because him playing, uh, that character being a younger character is awesome. And that he has like the perfect look for, uh, for a cool archeologist that's worth going into a cave to try to save. Um, but I called Andrew like the week before and he was like, well, all right. And then <laughs> he was on a plane and showed up on set, acted like a movie star and went back home. But it was, uh, there was, there, there was some thought into put into trying to get a name into the movie and you just, we had our shoot day locked and had to go with it. And, um, we're happy with what we ended up with is in terms of the movie for sure. Um, well, uh, you know, the the thing about a genre film, like any genre film, right? It's not necessarily dependent on on cast. I mean, obviously cast is the variable, but uh but still, the you I mean, you had great performances, you had great cast. Um and I it definitely did not hurt the movie just from a kind of a narrative perspective at all. So, you obviously put a lot of thought into who you were going to get in that casting process and and, and it shows. Yeah. Yeah, no, we we love everybody in this movie. It's I could, couldn't imagine it with anyone else. 
So let's talk about some of the visual effects because um, that's the first thing that really caught my attention. Um, it's a time-based movie and you have this really cool, I don't know, heat wave effect, I guess, when they put their hand into the cave and you can kind of see the barrier, the, 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 I guess you call it a time barrier for lack of a better word, but... It's called a time trap, actually. Like that, the, when they walk in, that's them getting trapped in time. So that's where the name comes from, is them walking into these time traps. And, and so how did you go about doing those visual effects? I mean, those, they didn't seem like small visual effects to me. They seemed like really, really cool, you know, VFX work. There's a mix. There's a mix of really complicated stuff that's, uh, I did a lot of them, um, along with uh, several vendors that we used. Um, but there's a mix of really complicated stuff that's way over my head and some and some pretty simple stuff like that heat wave effect, um, which is something that I just I did in After Effects on my own. And we got lucky right when we finished shooting our uh, our segment in Los Angeles, which is that scene, you know, where Andrew's at he's at the mouth of the cave and he's starting to feel the air, the air different before he goes in and uh, time essentially freezes for anybody looking into the cave. But uh Right when we finished shooting Video Copilot, which is this uh, website, Andrew Kramer, um, who does a lot of visual effects on, this, on the Lucas, Lucasfilm movies and J.J. Uh, Abrams stuff. And he has these just sort of plugins that he's created for, for After Effects. And I got an email and it was like heat distortion. And I was like, what's that? And I clicked on it. It's free. And you know, he puts them up and makes them available. And so, some things you have to buy, but... That was one that uh, that I got for free, and it worked perfect with our story. And it showed up literally the week after we shot it. And I was like, "Well, this saves us so much time." And we just put that on all of those uh, cave entrances as the as the kids are going in. So, you, so when Andrew Wilson, the 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 one of your leads, when when he puts his hand into the cave in that first sort of opening scene, that's just an After Effects plugin. It, it's a plug, yeah. It's a plug-in, but you know, I still have to go in and rotoscope his hands and make sure that I'm moving the the wall of uh, sort of liquid liquid air is what it looks like. Um, it, it looks fantastic. Like it, it, the the effect, it just it looks seamless. Like that's why um, I just think it's so awesome because I mean you have this the, these tools available, and honestly, you, you'd have no idea whether or not you spent ten thousand yeah. dollars in that shot or two bucks on that shot from what you're telling me. But like it's um, oh, that's totally that professional. Like, Cool. Yeah, no, that's good to hear. It's it's uh, it didn't cost money, but that one took some time. So it's kind of the motto of the movie. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So and then did you and did you outsource any shots sort of out of the country? Did you go to like Bulgaria or Estonia or anything like that? Or yeah, we had a, a guy in Bulgaria did a lot of the shots, a lot of the more complicated uh, CGI things. I just guessed we... Bulgaria, but that's really funny. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Bulgaria, and then uh, I met a guy in Los Angeles. I don't know how I met him, but, um, and I've worked with him on a lot of commercial stuff now after, after working with him on time trap, but he has his office here in Los or here in Los Angeles. And then he works with these guys in Russia and they just like pipeline stuff back and forth. So he has these animators and, um, I worked with him a bunch to get things done. And so I was like living a flipped life and I'm on like Russia time and Bulgaria time and, I want to yeah. I want to bring something up because I just remember something funny that I, that happened when we were shooting. There was like a, there were a lot of problems that we would have, and we would kind of move too quickly. And 
and our, our DP um, was like, oh, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll fix it in post. We'll send it off to uh, to China and they'll rotoscope, rotoscope that out for like 10 bucks an hour or something. And we were like, really? And we just kind of believed him and did a lot of things on set that to make the to make the shoot happen that we figured we would just fix later on. And it turned out that this like $10 an hour China thing either didn't exist or we couldn't find it. So we had a much bigger, much bigger plate to fill when it came to VFX than we thought we would have. Yeah, did, there did were you, a lot of shots that should not have been visual effects shots, but they were. Did you have an on-set VFX supervisor or no? We did for a few days in Los Angeles. The the scene there's a scene later in the movie where there's a, a much bigger time trap that the characters find, um, and there's a f- sort of frozen battle happening, you know, in the inside. And uh, we had a visual effects guy, uh, Matt Bramante, and he was he's done all kinds of of cool stuff. And he was on set and made sure that we did everything we were supposed to for that scene. But for the most part, you know, the original shoot, there was no visual effects person. Um, all those, uh, sequences where you're looking, you're inside the cave looking out and you can kind of see the sun, uh, passing overhead. Um, those are all things that we sort of, I just spent enough time thinking about it leading up to the shoot that I knew what we needed to do. So was was that effect a practical effect or was that a uh, or a VFX for them looking up at the sun and seeing time pass? It's a, the light is practical. We had it on a uh, it was it's kind of rotating and panning up above the the uh, the characters, and then later we just rotoscope out that whole light in the in the top part of the cave, and then add the effect in there. Very cool. Very cool. And, oh, yeah. You know what? A lot of, some of it's miniature. A lot of it's miniature. When you're looking up at the very top of the cave, it's a miniature that we built uh, in my driveway to get those shots, which has a green screen so that we could just key out. What? Uh, Seriously? Yeah. You made uh-huh. miniatures? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we did We did a lot of miniature work. Like this, There's some shots later in the film um, where these – I want to spoil anything with these crazy ropes, which is going to mean nothing to somebody that hasn't seen the movie. <laughs> I don't even know what it's about. We haven't even talked about what the movie's about yet. Yeah. There's some crazy stuff at the end, but these things are flying through the cave, and that's that's miniature work uh, there too. That's amazing. Those those ropes coming down. Uh, the ropes are CG, but but what they're what they're flying through is miniature, and the, and the characters when they're frozen, um, sort of in midair, looking up uh, with the water at the top of this is going to be nothing <laughs> to anybody that hasn't seen the movie. Um, this is like trying to pitch a day of shooting to the crew, and they're just like, "Whatever, man, just tell, me, just tell me what to do and where to stand." Our, our, <laughs> our DP would would talk to his friend who's the AC and try to explain to him what the plot was about, and the, the AC yeah, he was like, the "He didn't know." And he and the more the DP talked, the more confusing it was. And he's the AC is just trying to guess what the movie is, and he never could he couldn't get it because there's just so much. Wait, there's conquistadors, and now we're upside down in water, and we're in space, and we're in a cave, and there's cave. What's going on? Yeah, everybody's confused, but um, but yeah, a lot of that's it's that was the only way to do some of that stuff and to move the camera the way we needed to. It had to be a miniature. Dude, that's wild, man. That's really wild. And that was that was built by uh, uh, Jesse Clarkson in Los Angeles. He has a company called Nascent Perspective, and they they built an amazing miniature for us to shoot in. So, uh, how long did you spend editing the film? Now that you've you've got it in the can, VFX are done. How long were you in uh, in post? Well, VFX come last, but, um, you know, we did our, our first edit that we talked about and then we raised more money and then we shot more and then we edited more and then we realized uh, we shot too much and now we've got to take things out. Um, I would say a total about a year and a half. Yeah. I mean, we don't have an editor is the other thing, you know, Mark and I are editing this movie together and we're just, 
Mark will do a pass first where it's performances that he liked from set. And then I'll do a pass that um, feels a little more together. And then he'll tell me it's terrible and then he'll redo it. And then I'll redo it. So once, a lot once, of back we, and forth. once we feel like we're getting close to done, we, we kind of take it to audiences and do these test screenings and see if people can, cause it's kind of a complicated movie or it was at, at one point, but we try to, um, get get an idea of what, how the audience feels about it like do they understand everything do we take out too much do we need to put stuff back in once we get to a point where we feel like the audience understands it that's when we start to kind of cut it down and make it as tight as possible and we spend about three months just watching it every time we see like something that makes us cringe we we write that down as a note and sometimes we'll have 300 notes at the end of it sometimes we'll have 15 and we'll go through and we'll tweak every one of those and then send a cut back and forth at the time i was living in austin and ben was in los angeles and i would do a cut send the the whole cut to ben he would make a bunch of notes i would change that stuff and we just kept going back and forth until we finally got to a point where like we both felt like the movie worked really well and you know sometimes it's a matter of trimming out an entire scene that we love that we feel is one of the best scenes in the movie and then sometimes it's just like one or two frames you know it, it's really interesting because not a lot of people will go through that test screening process and it sounds like you went through it multiple times i mean w- sure. when 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 you first screened it did you find that people because it, it wasn't confusing at all like uh, i mean obviously clearly but um when you first screened it was it confusing did people find it confusing did you kind of take away okay this this movie isn't making sense the way it was currently cut did you have that experience uh, the, the first time the first time I screened it was for a group of uh, kids in, in Pflugerville, Texas, and they uh, they sat in and watched it, and they were as young as six, as old as 16, and at the very end of it, there's about 40 of them, at the very end, I said, um, okay, who's uh, the youngest person in here? And one of the moms puts her hand up because her daughter was six, and, um, and I asked the six-year-old, which now in hindsight probably you know terrified her to make her speak in front of everybody, but I was like, can you tell me what the movie's about? And she told me what the entire movie was about, and a six-year-old being able to explain the movie was enough to make make me realize that like it was it worked like it it made sense and from there on it was just the little things that we needed to work on. That's amazing. That's but but that, at the same great. time, you know, a kid will connect dots in ways that adults can't or, ref, or refuse oh, yeah. to. So it's it's interesting to see. Um, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, the uh, how did they get in the spaceship or or, or whatever? <laughs> Spoiler. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Um, there was you know, a- there's, there's just things that an adult wants to have explained to them because they want to know how it worked as, whereas a kid is like, it just works like whatever <laughs> deal with it. Yeah. It's we, cool. at, at, there was another screening that we did at the Alamo draft house in, in Austin in there were like a couple of, uh, older dudes in there that kept calling out like some of the logic that didn't really make sense. Well, why would they do this? And why would this happen? And it was really frustrating us. And afterwards our friend was like, don't listen to those guys. Those guys are, you know, they're 50, 60 years old. They're, they're thinking too hard about like what doesn't. Yeah. They're not having fun. They're there for a different reason. They're there because. But kids have imagination still. They can, they can figure it out. They can go, Oh, it doesn't matter that this doesn't make sense. I can just, you know, fill in the, the connective tissue myself. So in your mind, when you were listening to the older people who were trying to, poke logic holes in the movie versus somebody who's just trying to have, whether it be a six-year-old or a 10-year-old or 16-year-old, but just the person who's going to have that experiential fun. How did you guys internally decide, okay, did, I mean, did, did you have some kind of barometer for how to decide whether uh, a, a note had merit? Sort of. Um, I think that we went with just our, our gut instinct. And like, if there were things that somebody called out that didn't make sense. We're like, well, you're watching a freaking time travel movie. Like, what do you expect? It, it, not everything's going to be perfect, but if a kid can watch the exact same scene and go, 
I don't care. I get that. Yeah, that's fine. Let's keep going. That's what that's what really matters to us because in, in the end, the movie is is it's made the same. It's this it's similar vein as like you know Goonies and Back to the Future, and that's the stuff that we grew up watching and that we, that excites us. And we know that that's the audience that we made this for is is the like you know eight to fifteen year old versions of ourselves, and those are the ones who love the movie. So that's really what mattered to us more than the people who want you know like a Thinking Man's movie like this. This is a you know. There's still a really cool puzzle for an adult in this film, um, and I think there's a really cool adventure for um, anybody young and adults. But uh, but yeah, I think like Mark saying, they just you they, can't please everybody. Yeah, you, you can't, can't make everybody. You happy. can't take every note. Well, the, the, the funny thing about any time travel movie, and I'm not sh- I'm not sure if this holds, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that almost every time travel movie that I can see that I can remember has the one line that says, "Don't think about it too much." <laughs> <laughs> right? There's always that line where they kind of gloss over the paradox of time travel by saying, don't think about it too much. Um, yeah. But okay, so, so let's, let's, let's move on to now that you've, you, you've got this movie, it's ready to go. What was your district? I mean, did you have a distribution plan for it? Did you, you know, what was your thinking in terms of, did you want to, what was this always a festival movie in, in your head? Like, what did you do to plan out how you were going to bring this to, to audiences? We knew that we were making a genre film that we wanted to be fun uh, for a, for a wider audience than than we did our first movie, which is more of a thriller. Um, and uh, I think it turned into more of a festival movie somehow. But I don't, I don't even know. remember thinking about yeah, that. We, it, everything happened so fast. We just thought. Let's make a good movie that is marketable that, you know, a lot of people are going to want to see like a fun movie. And it was it, it's a popcorn movie. And we thought, OK, as long as we make a good movie, we don't really have to worry about it. And then, we, you know, we started taking it to film markets and selling it and then, you know, submitting it to festivals and getting some some buzz and, and you know, reviews and stuff and some pull quotes for the yeah. poster. And were you taking it to markets yourself or were you did you have a sales company at that time who, who was, in fact, repping the film for you? We had that first sales agent that we were talking about that started they started you know selling the territories that we weren't ready for them to sell but um you know i think the if you're making an independent film and you don't have you know major cast behind it and or, or a studio that's somehow involved somewhere along the line you're making a festival movie whether you like it or not and be sure to budget for it because that's all because that's all you can do I mean, unless you just want to stick it on YouTube and hope that, uh, you know, it catches fire, um, you've got to have a reason to be talking about your movie. And the only reason to be talking without spamming people saying them saying to watch the film is to be at festivals and be showing it to audiences. And there's nothing cooler than showing the film to, uh, you know, 100 people on an 80 foot screen in a cineplex. Like, that's why most people are, are making movies. We're not making them for iPhones. And uh, when you were doing, I guess, well, sorry, let's actually talk about the, the, the budgeting part because you, you mentioned that and, and that's, so, I mean, so what, what are your takeaways in terms of the things that people should in fact budget for? I mean, budget to make your movie as good as it can be. Uh, I oh, would no, budget sorry, for- specifically when it comes to that, that, because I assume you were referring to um, the marketing. Are you, are you talking about the festival stuff? Yeah, exactly. What are the okay. things that, that are the the line items that filmmakers entry, should be thinking about. Entry fees. Um, so, I mean, I think, how many did we submit to, Mark? Like probably 20, maybe we probably submitted at 20 festivals and each of those costs like 75 to a hundred to submit to. Sometimes like you might know somebody and be able to say, yeah, Hey, can wave could fee. you waive the fee? Um, that's really helpful. Cause we got the fee waived a few times because we had a friend of a friend 
who was like, these guys have spent all their money. Can you help them out? Like that occasionally yeah. that'll happen. And I think even one festival that we got into, uh, we, we submitted to the LA film festival and they really liked it. They were like, you guys got to the, to the finals. You almost got in, but we just, we didn't have enough room to program you. And then one of the programmers from that festival later on was like, I remember your movie. I, and I'd like to put it in this other festival that I'm programming. That was cool. Yeah, that was cool. That was, that was Bentonville, which we're going to in two weeks. And, um, you know, so, so all your festival entry fees you got to deal with, you should have posters. So design the poster, print the poster, postcards when you're there, I think helps to a degree. I'm not, I'm not totally sure, but it's nice to have something people, people see them. A publicist is a really good thing to budget for because a publicist is going to, is going to get you on TV and going to get you in magazines and, and get you podcasts. And that's, that's super important because that's not, you know, just because you can uh, write and direct a producer movie doesn't necessarily mean that you understand the PR world and having professionals that can do that is, is really, really big. Yeah. And I think having somebody that toots your own horn instead of having to call and invite yourself onto somebody's podcast just has a different, um, you're presenting yourself in a different way. And you know, a lot of that's, that's the world. Like they all know, they all know each other. And, um, and then travel. I think it's important if your movie's in a film festival, Somebody needs to go and somebody needs to be there. And these festivals, for the most part, won't pay for you to get there or pay for you to stay in a hotel. And, you know, the best – some of them do. Yeah, and, we, and we're, we've been flown out a yeah, few we, times. We've been, awesome. we've been really lucky uh, with a few festivals. But, you know, one of us. And then the other person has to buy a flight and, and find a hotel. And That's the uh, guy that still has a credit card that works in this case. <laughs> yeah, well, not always. <laughs> but uh, – but having cast there is cool too. It's always uh, – that's my mailman. That's an awesome bike. Sorry. My mailman just rode by on his bike. To answer like the, the overall question, like I would say that uh, you should at least – an independent film should have between five and $10,000 just for the festival run. At the, the, that's the floor. Like definitely want to have more. If you, if you have somebody in your movie, like if you have a name that you can get to come to the festivals, you want to see if you – if the festival is not going to fly them out, you're going to have to fly them out. You want to be able to have money for that to get them there because having a, a, a name at the festival, like a name actor will really generate more buzz. And yeah, it brings like, cameras and it, and it lets the press pay attention to you. Um, you know, our cast has come to a few film festivals and I, you know, I wish we could have them at all of them, but, um, we can't afford it and the festivals can't afford it. So at this point, um, you're well, okay. So we, we are recording this on April 23rd. You do have a couple film festivals coming out. So just let us know, uh, where uh, the, the upcoming festivals are so that anybody who are in those areas can hopefully check it out. Yeah, this Saturday we're playing at the Hill Country Film Festival in Fredericksburg, Texas, which is about an hour northwest of San Antonio and an hour west of Austin. And then next weekend we're playing at the Bentonville Film Festival. That's May 4th and 5th at Bentonville. That's in that's in Arkansas. Um, that festival is, I think it's sponsored by Walmart and it takes place in like the main town, their main distribution center. Yes, yeah, it's, it's their headquarters, and it, this is Gina Davis's film festival, and it's um, they've got some really cool stuff going on there. And I, I'm just presuming that uh, once your festival run uh, is is over, then I mean, and, and I really want to, anybody who's listening to this, I really hope that you have an opportunity to to check out this film. So, is there a plan for it to at some point? Um, It'll it'll end up on iTunes or some kind of SVOD yeah. platform. What's the thinking there in terms of how just sort of the general audience who wants to watch us in their in their house in their pajamas check out a time travel movie? How are how and when will they get that opportunity? It'll for sure be on iTunes. I would look for it in the in the fall. 
this coming fall. And, um, you know, everybody, all the filmmakers that I've talked to that have, that have distributed their movies, I think we've all decided that iTunes gets us the most, uh, money in our pocket. Um, Netflix is tough. I mean, I don't even know if we'll be able to end up on Netflix because, you know, it's, it's a, there's just, there's only so many slots that different distributors have put deals to, to place their content there. And if you're not with one of those distributors, it's tough to, to get on. Um, or you're essentially, you know, not making any, any money by being there. And it sort of, uh, undermines what you're doing on iTunes where you actually do make money. And so you've obviously, obviously had this conversation with other like-minded filmmakers. And so what is iTunes, the primary audience that you're looking for in terms of just people being able to, you know, find the movie, uh, online, I, I guess there's, there's see, no, I want to see the movie first and foremost, but if you want to help me pay off my credit cards, buy it on iTunes. Buy it <laughs> people, on iTunes. <laughs> when people ask us about our movie, one of the first questions they ask is, is it on Netflix? Which to me translates in my head to, I don't want to pay for your movie, but I want to see it. Um, but that's just kind of like the way the world is right now. Like everybody's used to the streaming services and the movie pass and stuff like that, which is only making things harder. So we need things like iTunes where people can still, you know, pay five bucks to rent the movie to make, you know, to make sure that the filmmakers are getting paid back. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the two hardest things ultimately is people need to know what it, the movie exists and then be able to to find it and actually download it. Um, which, you know, if you some people subscribe to Netflix, some people subscribe to Amazon, you know, Prime, uh, some people are, you know, not doing either the, either of those things. They're, they're just buying their movies on iTunes um, or it's Google or it's, you know, it's YouTube, whatever it may be. It's just so damn difficult to know where to find a movie these days. And there are only so many stops where people are actually willing to to do that. So as filmmakers, I mean, I, I definitely appreciate what, what what you're saying because ultimately, you know, how does a filmmaker make their money back? Um, so let's actually let's actually just 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 talk about that. I mean, we're 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 getting close to the end, but I do want to just sort of go into. I don't want to leave our conversation today without talking about recruitment and investors because I think it's just it's an important part of the conversation that we have. On this show, uh, when we talk about return to creators, to use a term that we've coined uh, previously on this show, what was your sort of um, best case hope for the investors that you brought in for recruitment, for how you thought about that? Uh, was this? I mean, because sometimes people people will go out, and I just, I, I just, I just want to frame this right. It's okay to make a movie if you're spending, you know, your own money, and the goal is to sort of, you know, leverage your own career. But were you going into this with the thinking we have to get the money back for our investors, or was it more of an angel type situation where people were supporting you as filmmakers? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we we want our guys to get their money back, but the money that's been put in, I think they are in a way investing in in our careers, and they know that, and um, you know, we're lucky we're lucky to have that that money and that access to that money. And they've been pretty easy going for, for, for the amount of money that we owe people to, to wait for a year. We're like, no, we, we want to do gamble on us a little bit longer while we do this festival run, because, you know, we could have unloaded all those territories and made at least some of their money back, but it would have, uh, I think we're going to be in a much better boat having spread the word about the movie and done these film festival runs. And all that stuff, but you know, at the end of the day, we have to sell this thing for like 1.2 million dollars um, for us to a pay them back and b pay ourselves something because we're a couple of guys that just you know put all of our money into uh, making this movie, even though we're the directors and everybody thinks we're like 
like got it made. While we're talking about like, you know, what the investors expect and being able to pay them back, the two most important things for uh, filmmakers whenever they're even thinking about their movie is they want to, you want to have a good concept because a a good concept is going to get everybody interested and it's going to make it easier to sell the movie. It's going to make it easier to get actors, which is the second thing. You want to make sure that you have somebody that's somewhat marketable even if they're only on set for three days and you put their face on the poster and you pay them fifty thousand dollars like that's the kind of thing that gets a movie sold and that's the kind of thing when these movies are taken to the film markets by the sales agents those are the things that they look for a cool poster cool idea and an actor somebody that they know even if they're not you know super big you want to have somebody that makes your movie valuable well i'm definitely rooting for you guys do you guys have your next movie lined up in terms of do you know what you're going to do next Every time we think that we've got something, we'll get like another idea or we'll think, well, the, you know, there's a weird trend going on right now that this idea that we were going to work on probably wouldn't fit very well in that. So there's probably three or four scripts that we're working on, but I think we're just trying to close the uh, close the chapter on this before we start the new one. Well, and what happens with this will determine what we at what level we're able to do the next thing at. So, well, you know be- what? You guys made a fantastic movie. Um, I encourage anybody who is listening to this, obviously, if they want to get some some better context for some of the specific things we talked about, I mean, and just to sit down and have a great time, check out Time Trap. Uh, It'll definitely be on iTunes, and um, we'll put some links uh, in the show notes for uh, for the upcoming film festivals that are coming up in the next couple weeks, guys. Uh, any parting words you have for our audience? Anything you want to to say uh, before we wrap this up for the day? No, thanks for having us. That was fun. Yeah, thanks, dude. Thank you, man. Awesome. Thanks, Jesse. All right, there we are, episode eighty-one in the can. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, this was a this was a fun pod. I'm so happy to be back and doing this show uh, and sharing it with uh, with everybody, especially having these guys on. I want to do more of these case studies. So if you like it, if you like this stuff and you want to hear more of these kinds of case studies, then please uh, find us on, on Instagram or any social at Craft Truck. Uh, that's where you'll uh, get all the updates about what we're up to. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, at Craft Truck. If you like this episode, please leave us a review uh, on iTunes. That helps other filmmakers find this podcast. Uh, so please do that if you are so inclined. And we'll see you on the next one.